So I think of kind of endorphins and cortisol on this balancing scale where, you know, if we're able to kind of increase the level of endorphins we have going on, do things that are good for us like exercise or balancing out our mood, we can start to decrease our or burn off, is what my teachers would call it, burn off our cortisol level. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Endorphins. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Catherine Grill. Dr. Grill is a behavioral neuroscientist, Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient, and founder of Neoth, which is a technology company that provides stress management and mental health support to students by delivering on-demand, personalized care through a self-guided platform. In this episode, Dr. Grill discusses her background in art therapy and then how she eventually got her PhD in neuroscience and then developed her own technology company. We also talk about the field of precision neuroscience and the importance of developing personalized care for mental health issues. We also discuss the different types of trauma-informed therapy and ways we can regulate our stress response and how endorphins can play a vital role in doing that. This week's interview is super informative and not only sheds light into the importance of personalized care, but why it's essential that we start bringing these concepts into the educational system. Before we get into it, make sure to like, rate, and review this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm really thrilled to have you here today, and I'd love to start off with you sharing a little bit about um, your background, if you could share a little bit about, you know, how you got to this point in your career, Um, and, you know, I know you're a behavioral neuroscientist, and now that you you started your own company around mental health and um, personalized wellness, uh, specifically in the education system, so how did you, how did you land on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the company you're talking about is is called Neoth. We're a technology company. We provide stress and mental health support uh, within the school system. So really focused on students ages 11 plus. And uh, how I got there was a bit of a journey. You know, I think something just kind of growing up, mental health was something that was always present in my life, whether it was friends or family members who were struggling. And I started to see how stigma and lack of access to care and financial resources could really be devastating. So I became interested in mental health from a young age. I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in art therapy and had done some clinical work. So working in psychiatric care um, directly, you know, with patients and, and really loved that, but became frustrated pretty early on because it was very evident who had access to care and who didn't. And it was much so based on, you know, insurance and money and could you afford this? And I just felt like that was a problem. Uh, so I went back to school. I ended up getting my doctorate in neuroscience. I was really interested in how could we make care more accessible, more equitable, um, and more personalized, kind of looking at the brain to um, 
drive those personalized insights. So I got my PhD in neuroscience. I worked for a while in clinical research. So that's research working with people, um, mostly with teens and young adults in mental health care and absolutely loved it. I learned how to create health programs, how to do research, how to validate those programs. Um, but the piece for me that was missing was the impact at scale. You know, research, you often do a smaller study, maybe a couple hundred or a couple thousand people, but I wanted to start changing things on the societal level and, and impacting millions of lives. So um, I guess long story short, that's how I ended up in technology. I really saw that as a vehicle for making care more accessible and moved out to Silicon Valley. Uh, it's going on five years now. I can't believe it. And ended up founding my own company. I love how you see technology as the vehicle to to create a larger impact because I think that's where the good comes from technology. Like it having the power to impact a lot of people's lives, you know, at a large scale. And then of course there are, you know, as we know, the detrimental effects that technology has on our mental well-being and our, on our mental health, specifically social media. But it's really inspiring to see how, you know, you're, you're transforming the power of technology for more social good, specifically with with Neolith, you know, with the company that you founded, can you talk a little bit more about the programs and like how they actually speak to, you know, your neuroscience background and incorporate neuroscience principles in developing like stress management tools for young adults? Yeah, well, high level, the way the program works, so it's technology based. So app based, there's also a, a no download needed browser version. Uh, but it's all self-guided. So you're not, you know, interacting with doctors or therapists, but it was made by doctors and therapists. So you have this self-guided app, so you download it on your phone. And the first thing that uh, people interact with is what we call our personalization survey. And this is where the neuroscience comes in. We like to learn about people uh, a little bit, so then we can personalize the content for them. So that information, it, it's fully confidential, but it really just helps our program and our algorithm, which is based on neuroscience, choose content that's relevant for that person. As we know, health and wellness, it's not one size fits all. And the type of content that people want to act, interact with, the mental health symptoms that they're maybe struggling with or the stress that they have, it just varies person to person. So if we can start to pinpoint, you know, what are you struggling with? What do you want to help with? Then we can connect them right away with the best resources for them, which is really important, especially if you're thinking about, you know, when are people maybe downloading this type of application in a point of feeling overwhelmed, feeling a lot of stress, not having that capacity to sort through a bunch of content. Um, so I think it's really a different approach than other applications where you download it and they have these kind of massive content libraries for you to sort through, but it's really just distilling the best media, whether it's audio, you know, relaxation practices or videos made by your peers talking about their experiences, whatever it is, just distilling that media and then serving it up to people. It could feel probably very overwhelming if you're given this like incredibly large library of content to sort through. Whereas when things are more personalized to you, I think there's more confidence in that, you know, it will be effective because the, the algorithm, you know, the programs are tailoring to your specific needs. And I know that offline, we talked a little bit about how neuroscience can inform, you know, the ways in which we engage with our mental health struggles or, you know, how we seek out certain types of therapeutic practices. So, for example, like depending on the chemicals in your brain and, and how our chemicals are showing up in our bodies and our brains, um, we may feel more inclined to meditate versus 
go for a run. Like there are different types of stress management techniques. So it's not, you know, obviously you, you can't get every user like in a brain scan to kind of see their actual, um, you know, composition and what's going on in their brains at a, a chemical and a cellular level. So, you know, how can you, uh, you know, translate what you could do maybe let's say in a, in an MRI scan or, you know, a brain scan, uh, like how could you translate those findings through the algorithm, like through the questions that you ask, like how does that technology actually help to personalize the content and, and help uh, users feel like they're, you know, getting the right resources for them to, to manage their stress and their emotional health. Yeah, that's a great point. Obviously, um, neuroscience, brain science, a lot of it is based on imaging studies. And um, imaging and fMRI was really developed in the, the early 90s. So it's relatively recent when we think about that compared to the field of psychology. Um, but gosh, we've learned so much from it. So, you know, obviously, it's not reasonable or possible to get everybody into a brain scan uh, machine and and do that sort of test on them. But you can absolutely do, you know, research beforehand. There's a wealth of uh, neuroimaging research out there that's actually free and accessible to the public, which is really cool. And you can learn about what's going on in the brain when somebody has a certain health condition like stress, anxiety, or depression. And then on the flip side, you can learn about what's going on in the brain when they start to do different treatments. So it becomes kind of like uh, a game of, I think, matching a little game kids play with the cards. Um, but can you match kind of the area of the brain that is is struggling when somebody has a health condition with a treatment that's going to kind of target that area of the brain? Um, and maybe a little bit more of a kind of down-to-earth example. I think a lot of people think of depression, right? And you think, okay, well, depression is one diagnosis per the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is what clinicians use uh, to diagnose people. So if it's just one diagnosis, then everybody should have the same treatment, right? Um, and we know that's not true. And people will start to know that it's not true because you can think of how many people that you've talked to, so many people have maybe had depression and have responded to different treatments. Like some people respond to medications and antidepressants and other people don't. And people always ask kind of why, you know, why is that working for somebody else, but not me, and I have the same diagnosis. Well, it really boils down to what's going on in the brain. So there's very cool research that's going on across the world. Um, out here in California, Stanford's probably one of the most prominent places, but the field is called kind of precision mental health care, or precision neuroscience, I've seen it called as well. And what you can do is you can take a group of people with the same diagnosis, like depression. I've seen it with anxiety, PTSD. My work is with chronic stress. And you can start to do brain imaging and really develop different subtypes. So even though they have the same condition, they have kind of differences in their brain, subtle differences in their brain, where you can then predict which treatment they'll best respond to. So for something like depression, I mean, this is key because it takes 11 years from the start of symptoms to people actually getting treatment that works for them, which is so problematic. So to be able to kind of from the beginning, figure out what's going on with them and connect them with the right treatment, um, that's life-saving, right? I didn't know it was 11 years. That's so long. It's, it's, it's wild. It's really, really long. And then just think about in that time period too, like all the, the stress, the trauma, the quality of life that people might be having um, or decreased quality of life, the potential suicide attempts, right? Um, it, it's really problematic. 
So kind of to go back and answer your question, so now we understand the brain can be different, even if we have the same condition, you need to be able to match people with the right treatment. Um, what you can do if you can't use brain imaging is if you've had enough brain imaging research on both the symptom side and the treatment side, you can build up AI components and matching to look at what we call behavioral phenotypes, or you can think of it like um, subtypes, right? Subtype A, subtype B, based on different behaviors that people have. And then you can start to kind of get a sense of, well, I think based on these questions that these people are answering, that they fit into this subtype, this is what's going on with their brain. And I know that these treatments will work for them. So that's the type of a precision neuroscience approach that we use on Neo. Yeah, I've I've heard of Stanford also doing a lot of really interesting research specifically in like the neuroscience department. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Andrew Huberman. Um love his podcast, Huberman Lab. He's he's great and he's able to kind of like really talk about these complex neuroscience concepts in a very digestible way and also speak to a lot of the research that's being done at Stanford. Um so I'm really glad that you, you know, brought that up. But going off of, you know, your point around the different types of treatments that are available depending on, let's say, your behavioral phenotype, you know, I think we're all very familiar with endorphins being a, you know, a good way to kind of help reduce symptoms of depression and anxiety, like the, going for a run, like exercise is actually, I believe, one of the best lifestyle choices that you can make to help with symptoms of depression and anxiety. So as far as, you know, the the types of treatment that you offer, so, you know, provide on on your platform, how do they differ depending on your behavioral phenotype? And, you know, what could, can users expect to kind of see from, you know, after taking maybe that diagnostic, uh, you know, what those treatment options could look like for them? I guess I should also be clear too that Neoth is really more for general wellness and stress management. So we're not treating any specific health condition like depression. Um, but we do, you know, work with people who have things like depression or anxiety as what's called an adjunct to care. So really kind of complementary between whatever work they may be doing with their doctor. As far as the techniques that we have on Neos, we have a range of um, in neuroscience, what we call bottom up and top down techniques. So bottom up is really around kind of creating new sensation in your body. So you can think about things that have to do with movement, things that have to do with touch, like maybe art techniques. Uh, breathing is a great one. And then more of a kind of top-down technique. So you could think about things like changing your patterns of thinking, CBT, um, mindfulness and meditation, guided imagery. So it's a combination of those. And then we can kind of work with people uh, across the spectrum, giving them, you know, whether it's all one type or whether it's some sort of combination of the different techniques that we offer. My generation, I feel like, is kind of experiencing this mental health epidemic in particular. And we're also starting to recognize that chronic stress can lead to physical ailment. Like dealing with mental health issues can directly impact our physical well-being and our quality of life. Recently, like burnout was coined as, you know, an actual definition, like an actual term terminology. Uh, and I think young people especially are experiencing high levels of burnout, either in a school environment or in a work, in a working environment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how have you seen, um, you know, the students on your platform kind of combat issues related to burnout and and dealing with um, high levels of stress. You know, I think there's definitely a need in, in that age group, but how have you seen their 
well-being improve? And also why in particular, you know, do you find it necessary to target like the younger generation? Yeah, I guess a couple questions. How do we see changes and then why the younger generation? So uh, how some of the changes that we've seen, some of the research we've done, um, we typically do survey-based research. So looking at things like the PSS, uh, that's perceived stress scale. So changes in stress over time, decreases in stress, uh, things like the HADS, hospital anxiety and depression scale. So decreases in anxiety and depression. So those three things, anxiety, depression, and then stress, obviously really common across anyone, but I think especially um, the younger generation also increases in things like self-efficacy. So how confident are they to kind of navigate the stressors in their life? That's a really important part of it. Um, And then we've also seen decreases in stigma in as little as three weeks, which I think is fantastic because stigma is such a huge barrier, um, you know, to getting care. And I think that probably goes back into your other question, why the younger generation? Uh, We have a youth mental health crisis. It's getting worse and worse. It was bad before COVID. Uh, COVID has made things much worse, but it's not going to change if we keep, um, some people have described it as kind of trying to put a Band-Aid over a fire hydrant that's like spewing all this water um, by saying, well, let's um, do some more crisis care intervention. Uh, don't get me wrong. Crisis care is critical. It saves lives. But why would you ever wait until somebody's at the point of crisis, overwhelm or thinking about taking their life to intervene? Like that just, increases dramatically the risk of crisis. So if you can go in as young as possible, if you can kind of flip this healthcare model on its head and not wait until people are sick or overwhelmed, but go in as young as possible. And to me, that's young people, that's the schools. You can kind of attack this youth mental health crisis from the preventative lens. So that's doing things like skill building, learning about emotions, um, to recognize emotions, how to regulate emotions, learning about mental health, learning about stigma, decreasing stigma, getting them comfortable reaching out for help. So if anything does happen in the future, they, they won't keep it to themselves. They'll actually be more willing to access any healthcare that is offered to them. Yeah, I think that's a, it's an important point. You know, how can we be proactive instead of reactive around the, these issues? You know, we wouldn't, why wait until, you know, the point of crisis when we, we can kind of uh, tackle it head on first before things could escalate to that kind of issue? I'm really curious to hear how you envision, you know, the future of educating the younger generation about stress management and mental health. Like, how do you see that become more integrated with the education system? And, you know, what do you hope for that to look like in the future? I think the more that we can integrate health curriculum, so health, you know, we talk about mental and physical health. I'm an integrative specialist, so I believe it's all just health, but I I do see the need sometimes to separate things into mental and physical health to be more clear. But the more we can integrate health and mental health curriculum into the schools, we can normalize it. You know, think about math, science, all these other classes that you were taking from day one and you were always, you know, talking about it with friends, with teachers, with parents. Now imagine from a very young age, you're talking about mental health on a regular basis before you're at a point where you're not feeling well with your friends, with your teachers, with your parents. It becomes something that's so normal and so natural that, of course, if something starts to go wrong, you're going to talk about it. You're going to have the language to talk about it. You're not going to feel that stigma. You're going to have the understanding of who you can reach out to for help. So my my real hope is to 
integrate this in a very real way into schools across, you know, the age span. So it's something that we're just interacting with on a daily basis. And um, I think that just makes things much more equitable and more, um, more accessible to, to young people. That's a really great point that you bring up, like having the language. I feel like it's really difficult to conceptualize what you're going through if you can't, if you don't have it in your vocabulary to talk about it. You know, how do you translate what's going on in your head or, you know, how you may feel like in your body, like those sensations that you might be feeling that are probably directly related to symptoms of anxiety or depression. Like if you can't verbalize that and vocalize it and share it with others, then I can imagine it's even more difficult to just have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how would you know that something is stress or how do you know that a stomach ache or headache or um, even just not feeling well? I think a big question that we get a lot of times from young people or that I've seen, you know, as a clinician is um, I don't enjoy things anymore, right? I, things that I really used to like, I don't enjoy. And that's a, a potential symptom, right? Of depression. But how would you know that if you weren't first taught that. So I think even just educating around the signs and symptoms of stress and depression, things like that, it really helps these young people learn to notice red flags in themselves or in their friends, and then also to um, know what those channels are, who they can reach out to for help. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the neuroscience behind happiness and also what's kind of going on in our bodies and in our brains when we talk about the body-mind connection. So I know we there's a few different happiness hormones. Obviously, we have endorphins, we have serotonin, we have dopamine. But could you give a little overview on like the the distinction between those different happiness hormones and you know how they um, play roles in our body? Yeah, I I will give a bit of a distinction and on a disclaimer, a very high level. Um, so you mentioned serotonin, for example, a lot of people. Think about that as far as elevating mood. Uh, that's kind of the main chemical, and what we think of as SSRIs, right? The um, it's a main class of antidepressants. So increasing serotonin to help elevate mood, uh, whether it's something that's happening naturally in the body or something that's actually coming from medication. Uh, dopamine we think about as kind of pleasure and reward. It can be associated with things like addiction. So you think of things like. Um, eating, um, eating rich foods, um, things like sex, things like uh, gambling, alcohol can be associated with those. Um, but there also is a kind of a natural uh, amount of dopamine that you want to feel rewarding uh, in your body. It also has to do with movement too. So kind of disclaimer, I'm talking about some of these chemicals in a kind of one faceted way, but they actually have kind of multiple implications in the brain and the body and uh, depending on which part of the brain they're active in. Um, oxytocin, I think of as well, which has a lot to do with kind of social situations and bonding. Um, people can think of it as kind of bonding between them. Uh, typically, like people would talk about it like a birth mother and, and child um, and with breastfeeding. But you can also think of it with, you know, partners or friends or other people that you're involved in. So there is this kind of complex, I guess, array of chemicals that are going on. Um, but I actually, and it probably depends, you know, who you talk to. Uh, I think some people are really interested in the chemicals. I'm really interested in the integration of the brain. So looking at things like the triune brain, uh, the different levels of the brain, kind of from the evolutionary perspective, and then what is that kind of integration and how um, different impulses are kind of uh, external stimuli, how they're consciously or unconsciously processed, and then what are 
kind of regulation responses, our ability to self-regulate or to kind of understand those external stimuli, that's something that I think is really, um, really interesting to me. I think is getting a lot of uh, a lot of study and a lot of attention in in neuroscience, and I think that has a lot to do with both happiness and then also the way that we. Uh, regulate stress is when we really start to look at the connections between different areas of the brain. Uh, you can think of kind of the neurochemicals as cars and the connections as roads and, and neurochemicals kind of need those, um, this is a very <laughs> simplified metaphor, but need those roads, right, to be able to to travel. So I think of the integration as an important piece as well. Our environment really can sh- shape our reality. You know, who we surround ourselves with location-wise, like where we're physically located, like what's directly in our environment, who we choose to bring into our um, our space can directly impact our well-being and our mood. And um, maybe we can observe this from a more like psychological level. But I, you know, also it's, I, what I hear you saying is that our environment can also kind of affect us on this like neuroscience level as well, like from our brain chemistry, um, kind of like the where you're, you know, where you were just talking about like the integration of these hormones in our bodies and in our brains. And so I think, you know, especially the younger generation or kids who are maybe in middle school or high school, you're, you're at an age where you're not necessarily like cognizant around being intentional with your environment. Also, a lot of the time we can't necessarily like choose what environment we're placed into in our childhood. So what are some, you know, insights you can share around just developing a greater awareness around like how our environment can affect our, our mood, our well-being and our brain chemistry, like that integration piece? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big point. It's a tough point that you bring up, especially when we're talking about children, because to what extent do they really control their environment? You know, I would say it's very limited. Um, And that, you know, I think is, can really lead to things like developing a chronic stress response, trauma, uh, behavioral and emotional difficulties down the road. So I do think that that is part of the reason why it's really important for integrating these types of kind of social, emotional learning, stress management techniques early on, because you can start to teach the children different techniques to kind of deal with things in their environment or to at least have that language to start to understand when something's going on in the environment that's problematic, that they might have more of that language to be able to to share with somebody. Having some of the skills is going to be important. And then the community resources and support as well, especially for young people. I think it's, you know, some part that they do independently on their own, but a large part it's based on the support systems and the communities who are surrounding them and how adults can, you know, intervene when needed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's it's a really hard question to answer. And I think it's also, you know, kind of like the golden question too, like, you know, kids in particular don't really have control over in their environment. So what are some steps that they can do to feel empowered to take care of themselves when a lot isn't in their control necessarily. I want to kind of go back a little bit to some of those chemicals we were talking about. You gave a definition around like dopamine versus serotonin, but what about endorphins? Can we talk a little bit about like the role that endorphins play in our, in our brains and in our bodies as well? 
I think people most often associate endorphins with um, with elevated mood, with things like exercise, and um, sometimes I think about them as like if you think about one of those scales, like those balancing scales. Um, and again, this is a simplistic explanation, but thinking about it as kind of balancing out cortisol. Um, so cortisol being one of the stress hormones, right, that has um, a really negative impact on the brain and the body when it's in overdrive. So obviously it's there for a reason. It's adaptive. We have cortisol in the body for a purpose, but when we're in this chronic stress phase, it can start to really impact the body. Um, so I think of kind of endorphins and cortisol on this balancing scale where, you know, if we're able to kind of increase the level of endorphins we have going on, do things that are good for us, like exercise or balancing out our mood, we can start to decrease our, or burn off um, is what my teachers would call it, burn off our cortisol level. Uh, so I think that that's, that's one way that many people think about it and that can be kind of helpful is if you can kind of get more of the endorphins and help yourself lower some of the cortisol or some of that stress hormone. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. I feel like the more that you try to incorporate things in your life that bring you that sense of joy and happiness and fulfillment, um, you start to gain more confidence in your ability to to take care of yourself. And I think you know, psychologically it does something to you where you feel like, oh, I, like I, I'm able to, to do this. I'm, I'm, I feel good in, in my body and I feel good in myself and I feel like I can take care of myself. And so that produces positive emotion. And then it's like this ripple effect. Like once you have that sense of self, that, that sense of positivity, then it's easier to kind of do the things that are good for your health. Um, when you when you feel like grounded in that, and so what I love about your program is that you're equipping s- students with actionable skills and steps that they can do to kind of build that emotional toolkit and strengthen those tools like resilience and and grit. I think grit in, is really fascinating in particular, also like looking at um, you know the neuroscience of grit and resilience as well in, in our brains. Um, but you know, giving students the ability to like have these tools to come back to in times of hardship because we're always going to face stress in our lives. And like you mentioned, stress, you know, has an evolutionary purpose. Like it's some it's good to actually have a small amounts of stress in our lives. It, can kind of drive us to do things. But it, the, the problem, again, is like when it's an overdrive. So how do we kind of regulate that and make sure it doesn't kick into overdrive? So when I think about the stress response, um, I think about three different hormones. So people typically think of cortisol as a stress hormone. Um, and then I also think about like epinephrine and norepinephrine. So the hormones that are being released into our body kind of circulating in our, our bloodstream, they typically land on a target organ. And they'll have some sort of effect, like for example, making your heart beat really, really quickly. Um, and again, this stuff is adaptive because you need to have that kind of fight or flight response to get away from danger. You need to have this um, stress response going on in your body uh, for a certain time. So when it becomes problematic, it's not that these hormones are bad, but when they are elevated in the blood, in the body for long periods of time, that's when it becomes problematic. And that's when you start to see problems like, um, you know, physical health problems, mental health problems as well, burnout, chronic stress. I think, you know, what you said before was really interesting about kind of having that self-efficacy or that feeling of agency and control. And that's why I love behavioral medicine, because it is very much so a learned skill, 
putting a tool in your toolbox. It's interesting. A lot of students will actually describe it like that. This is a tool I'm putting in my toolbox. This is something I learned on the app that I've remembered to do later on, even though I didn't have my phone on me, but in a real world situation that I could do. Um, so I love that because it's all about building these skills and then using them in real world situations as they're growing up. Um, but definitely having that kind of sense of control or mastery, I think that really helps a lot of people with knowing like, I know how to handle the situation. And I think from a neuroscience informed perspective, different things you can do, at least the way I like to categorize it, I really think of it as this kind of bottom up and top down, what I mentioned before. Um, and that really has to do with the, we categorize it by kind of the type of processing, whether it's afferent or efferent processing. So like, is the stimulus coming from the body? For example, am I breathing or moving? Am I manipulating my body? My brain is registering that. So the stimulus is coming from the body to the brain. We call that kind of bottom up. Or is it top down? Is it something like a CBT where I'm restructuring, I'm changing my thoughts, and that's having an effect on my body? For example, calming down my breathing, calming down my heart rate. Um, I really like personally, like the bottom up, I think people do start to have a preference. Bottom up techniques are really great for when you're in that moment of panic, when you're in that moment of overwhelm. Um, this is much more aligned with trauma informed care uh, when you do it correctly. So you can think of things like breathing exercises, um, somatic experiencing, which should be done with the therapist. Oh, that's a really interesting one for, for trauma, um, dance therapy, uh, music therapy, things like that can be really fantastic. Um, and the way that they they work, it's so immediate. There's the vagus nerve, right? It connects from your brain and it goes right into your lung, right into your heart. So if you can do this deep breathing, especially prolonging that exhale, what you're doing, um, I kind of think of it like that game telephone. You know, we had when your kids with the, like the cups on the string. Um, it's like automatically, you know, your, your lungs are doing this deep breathing and it's communicating with your brain. It's like, hey, you can chill out. It's fine. You're in a safe place. Um, so you can very kind of quickly turn off that stress response or turn off that panic. So I think any sort of breathing exercise is a great thing for people to have in their toolkit. Uh, but then some people also really like those kind of cognitive restructuring, CBT techniques or mindfulness techniques. We have all of these things on Nails on our app. Um, the one thing that I would kind of caveat that I would say is I really think when you're in that moment of kind of panic or overwhelm, you need to be doing the grounding techniques, the bottom up techniques. Um, it's really hard to try to do a cognitive restructuring or top down technique when you're not feeling calm, you need to be kind of in that calm mindset. So I almost think of those as more advanced techniques, um, or when you're in feeling like a more kind of stable emotional state, but either one, I think, can work really well as far as feeling that sense of mastery. And how do we when we're recognizing stress in our environment, how do we start to manage that? Yeah, I love this distinction between top down and bottom up. I think it's a really nice way to kind of differentiate the two different buckets, let's say, of of stress management techniques. And, uh, you know, something that I was reminded of as you were talking about that, specifically with, um, you know, trauma-informed response, stress response um, techniques around like finding things to ground you. You know, I, I love body scan meditations and I find those to be so powerful because you're forced to ground yourself with the sensations in your body as you focus on like each particular body part, kind of scanning from your the crown of your head to your feet or your feet up to your head. And so I think when you can really 
kind of like be intentional and focus on specific areas of the body and like the sensations that you're feeling at that point in time, it forces you to be in the present because your body is in the present. Our mind exists in the future and in the past. And, um, you know, if we're not with our body in the present, then we're suffering, you know, the consequences of anxiety and ruminating and, um, and, and depression and, and feeling sad or, or lost. And, you know, I think that's why like the body is such a, um, a powerful anchor to come back to and specifically the breath as well, because like you described how it can, um, kind of bring us that feeling of safety and comfort and immediately decrease our heart rate. I mean, the breath is the most direct access that we have to regulating our heart rate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of going back to that too, thinking about the body, I used to teach um, in the somatic department, a really fun class. It was neuroscience for people who are becoming therapists. So uh, we're thinking about it from a really body informed perspective. But as you're thinking about these techniques and what you want to do yourself or what you want to do in the classroom with your students, I think that trauma informed perspective is really great. Um, and just kind of disclaimer, this might be a bit of a trigger warning for some people, but, you know, thinking about the body, especially for people who have been um, abused physically or sexually, it can be really scary or just have had trauma or other strong emotions because they live in the body. Like think about when you felt very sad or upset, like the physical sensations in your body. So sometimes what happens is when we're doing these exercises, we're bringing awareness to the body, like a body scan, there can be this bubbling up or overwhelm of emotions. I've had a lot of teachers talk to me about this, like I was doing mindfulness or something in the classroom, and some of my students have had this very negative response. And they're kind of surprised, why would that happen? So typically those are, are students who might have experienced some sort of trauma. And what I think what's happening is when you experience trauma, and this is kind of a neuroscience thing, you cut off from the body. And what I mean by that is there's less um, cortical integration and processing. So there's less um, in areas like uh, the insula and the ACC, there's actually, you can see on brain scans, less processing um, in those areas that have to do with body awareness. So people kind of are sh trying to shut off their emotions and emotions live in the body. So what's happening is they're shutting off their emotions and their body awareness. And when you jump into some of these things like body scan, you're kind of jumping back and like, it's like turning on the floodgates. Um, so there's a way to do it in a way that can help people kind of self-regulate. And that can be movement or awareness of the body that's safe. So rather than jumping right into, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to do a body scan, what's going on now, it can be um, in the classroom, turning on music and doing some dance. And then, okay, we're going to do, we're going to not just jump into the sensation that's kind of scary in your body, but we're going to create a new safe sensation, some fun dance, some fun movement, and then we're going to become aware of our body then. So I think that can be really important to know too, like that body awareness, it's key because that's emotional awareness and you first need to be aware of your emotions to manage and regulate them, but doing so in a kind of trauma-informed lens in a way that feels comfortable um, is also really important and it can be really tricky. It kind of reminds me of trauma-informed yoga, which I feel like is another really great example of, you know, incorporating movement into the, the healing process. Yoga in it of itself is just a very therapeutic practice to do. And I'm not very familiar actually between, you know, the difference of between like a regular, maybe let's say like vinyasa class versus doing maybe more of like a restorative practice that is more focused on, on trauma. But I can imagine that there are a lot of like similarities because um, you know, one of the 
the things that I find to be most beautiful about the yoga practice is how it really allows you to develop that intuition with your body, especially because you're focusing on bringing breath to movement and mapping breath to movement. And so when you're focusing on your breath and moving in a certain position, you're grounded in the present and you're feeling, you know, those, those sensations in your body. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, the emotions are in our body. So we also talk a lot about in yoga, how um, emotions are very much like stored in our hips. And so when you're doing poses like pigeon pose, it's quite often that you can like experience the emotional sensations and without even putting active thought towards it, it can kind of just surface. Is this kind of what you've experienced or seen in um, things like dance therapy or maybe even art therapy when you were doing that, you know, earlier in your career? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, again, it will depend on the individual. It will depend on their background. People who are listening will probably have a really clear preference. It's almost like a gut reaction of like, this sounds great. I'm interested in these expressive arts or I, I really prefer talk therapy. And for me, talk therapy, I think I always had kind of a visceral reaction. Um, people are kind of surprised as a therapist when I say that, like that did not feel safe to me. That did not feel comfortable for me for a lot of reasons. Um, but the expressive arts did, and it was just more trauma informed art therapy. Yeah. It's really, really interesting. I think a lot comes out sub of the subconscious. So when you think about working with children, with young people, um, people who have experienced trauma, even older people, if you think about like Alzheimer's or dementia, people who are struggling to verbalize, um, these, these techniques can be really great because with talk therapy, it's all about verbalization. And again, I keep going back to this integration of the brain, but that's so key towards health and healing. And what happens in trauma and stress um, you can think of it like three different levels of the brain, right? You have your, um, what people call kind of reptilian brain, the brainstem, um, heart rate, breathing, that type of thing. You have what people call the emotional brain, um, which is your, you know, amygdala area, things like the stress response. And then you have the the cortex and things like um, the higher order thinking, kind of reasoning, um, being able to shut off that stress response, right? So the integration of the brain is the three of them talking, you know, something is happening. And rather than my emotional brain, just saying, I'm going to react, like I'm going to have this big reaction, being able to take a step back, breathe, respond, and have your kind of cortex do this top down regulation of actually, this is the best way to respond, not what I wanted to do in this moment, but here's the most appropriate way to respond. So I think in order to kind of really engage sometimes in these things like talk therapy, you need to be in a place where you can verbalize what was going on. Um, and you need to be, you know, relatively calm because as we start to get more and more stress, what happens is we lose that integration and we, we shut down the top part of our brain that has to do with verbalization. So it can be very difficult for somebody who's in that heightened state of stress to kind of talk things through um, versus something that's more movement oriented, that's more expressive arts oriented, especially, you know, when there's that trauma response, people are starting to work through it, but they're working through it in a way that's nonverbal and that meets them where they are if they're not kind of fully integrated and using those more verbal areas of their brain. Um, also really important, actually, when people experience trauma, um, there's less activity in Broca's area, which has to do with like verbalization. Um, 
and also in like the hippocampus and parts that have to do with memory. So we have, you know, impaired memory and impaired verbal memory. So it's really hard to talk about or remember these things. But when you kind of express it through the body, um, that can be really healing and people can kind of start to put the pieces together. So I think it's it's very important to understand these techniques. I loved as a neuroscientist working with different therapists who one was like, I do somatics and I do art and I do CBT and kind of bring them all together in a room to talk about their different techniques and then start to see, well, here's actually the best kind of implication or case study for when you should be using your um, technique based on the neuroscience. Because I think a lot of times we think about therapy as like, well, who's in network, who can we afford, who's close to us, and then it doesn't matter what's going on. But if you start to think about it from this neuroscience lens, you can see, oh, based on what's going on with me, one technique might be really more appropriate. Um, so understanding, I think, some of the nuances there, um, I mean, that's what precision mental health care is, and that's why it's so exciting. I think it also speaks to this point that you raised earlier around health not being a one-size-fits-all, and also recognizing that there are uh, – less traditional modes of therapy that doesn't have to just be like going to a therapist that's like in network and your, you know, your provider, there's different ways you can access therapeutic benefits from different activities. And I think especially also having an open mind is so critical too, um, to recognizing that there are, um, different ways that you can heal and different ways that you can take care of yourself. Um, and you know, something that I'm also interested in hearing is, as someone who is very knowledgeable about um, our brains and our bodies and our psychology and our neuroscience, do you find that, you know, having this wealth of knowledge helps empower you to, to manage your stress better? Or does it sometimes feel like you have uh, maybe too heightened of an awareness, if that makes any sense? Like you're, you're too aware and, you know, you understand the facts maybe to, to a fault sometimes, or it can be difficult to actually make those changes in your life? That's such an interesting question. No one has ever asked me that. Um, <laughs> I think that it's really helpful. I think as somebody coming from a background with some difficulties with like a higher ACEs score, um, so ACEs, it's adverse childhood experiences, right? Um, there there was a lot of stress. There was a lot, um, for me, stress manifests physically. So a lot of physical health issues that I didn't fully understand. And I could not advocate for myself and explain to the doctors what was going on uh, because I didn't know. So I think coming to this place of understanding both from the psychological and then the biological perspective, I really understand myself better. It's been helpful in my own kind of personal journey when I've been able to have that education and that kind of background to be able to talk to doctors and explain again, having that language um, to explain what was going on. I think it's, I think it's helpful though for anybody um, to be able to recognize it's kind of recognizing the trigger. You can think of it like a glass of water and when it starts filling up and filling up and at some point it starts pouring over. I think most of us recognize stress once it starts pouring over. We're like, this is something happened. I'm overwhelmed. This is too much but really we should be recognizing it much earlier. So whether it's me, you know, somebody like me wanting to learn this through their degrees and their professional experience, or I think the majority of us who are just wanting to learn through skill building and activities and things on, on NEOS and other programs, either way, I think it, it's critical. Um, there can be this kind of 
heightened anxiety and stress response when you start getting into it, especially if there's trauma. So that's important to understand. That's when it might be important to loop in a doctor or therapist. But um, either way, I, I always advocate for for building up that foundation of awareness because I just think knowledge is power. I love your answer. And, you know, the reason I, I wanted to ask is because <laughs> I my studies in college were a combination of philosophy and neuroscience and psychology. So as you were going through the different areas of the brain, I was getting flashbacks to like cognitive neuroscience or principles of the nervous system. And um, I think because I've had these just natural you know, inclinations towards finding these topics interesting, I've kind of used myself as a case study. So when I'm feeling stressed or overwhelmed or anxious, I um, I think deeply about it. And so I feel like I, you know, am flexing those self-awareness skills and muscles, but then sometimes it can feel like it's to a fault where I can overthink things or I'm like, you know, too prescriptive about, you know, what's going on in my life or, you know, why I'm behaving a certain way or why I'm thinking a certain way. So it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective because I, I would agree that at the end of the day, knowledge is power and it's, it's, um, it's helpful to, to be informed by what's actually going on in your brain and in your body to better understand and to, to have the vocabulary to, to talk about it, to, to express it. Another question that I have, and, and actually I'd love to land on this one because it's something that I think kind of ties directly into what we were just talking about. What is something that brings you a bit of endorphins and joy in your day-to-day life? I've always been someone, as we talked about, that was more kind of physical and gravitated towards using my body in the expressive arts. Um, I actually have a degree in art, so I was like a painting student long before I went to neuroscience. So I love um, art and art therapy. I did that myself personally. Um, exercise, um, I'm a big fan of swimming. So I do that almost every day in California. We're lucky to have sunshine. Um and then also just spending time in, in nature, or spending time with animals. So yeah, it's interesting for me. I think a lot of it has to do with the body. It has to do with nature. It has to do with animals and less about spending time with people. Uh, but that's just me personally. Obviously, exercise brings endorphins. Creativity brings endorphins. Um, I've heard a lot of similar answers to, the, to those as well. So lovely to get to hear your response too. Catherine, it's been such a pleasure having you as a guest on the podcast. Where can my listeners find you? Where can they connect with you? Where can they um, learn more about everything that you're doing with Neolith and and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. Probably the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn, uh, Catherine with a K, Grill, G-R-I-L-L. You should be able to find me. Uh, send me a note that you you know heard about me through the podcast. Um, people can also check out Neos. It's on the App Store or Neos, um, N-E-O-L-T-H dot com is our website. And there's uh, interviews I do or other people in the field are doing um, that you can kind of learn about more. So I would say, you know, either from LinkedIn, my personal LinkedIn or from our website at Neos. Thank you again so much. It's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening and remember to like, rate, and review this podcast on whichever listening platform you prefer. Don't forget to keep spreading endorphins and find things that bring you endorphins every day. See you next time.